Acts 18, 12 through 21. Beginning in verse 12. And when Galileo was deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, Galileo said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of words and names and of your law, look ye to it, for I will be no judge of such matters. And he drave them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Galileo cared for none of those things. And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren, and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Sencrea, for he had a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. And he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you, if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we once again open your word, and it is a great privilege for us to read this passage, and to set aside this time to study it as the gathered church. And Lord, we pray that as we have your word, that we would approach it with thankful hearts, that you have given it to us, that you have preserved it for us, and that we have it right in front of us to read and to hear a sermon on. And we pray that you would, by your grace, apply it to us, to revive us, and to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask your blessing for without your grace working in us, the word will not profit us. We pray and ask for your grace. We also want to pray for those who are not with us today because of uh, various uh, trials or difficulties or on the road because of health reasons. We just pray and ask your blessing on them where they are at. And we also want to just commit to you, Diana, as she is in the Twin Cities, and just pray for her as she helps along with the health needs there. We pray for Josh as well for successful surgery and physical healing. We pray that you would bring them and the others who are traveling who are not with us back safely to us once again. We ask your blessing now, and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, as usual, praise God's holy name, amen, that we could be gathered together here this morning, again, with his word in our hands, and uh, so utterly thankful, and I think the time is coming, the day is coming, brother, when we will be even more thankful that, uh, as Brother Dean has just prayed, that God would preserve his holy word for us to have in our hands, amen, that we could have the Bible uh, so readily available 
to us. And so uh, this morning, again, we're so thankful, so grateful again as we gather that it is indeed God's word that directs us. It is indeed God's word that teaches us. It is indeed God's word that keeps us, if you will, where we need to be. Amen. And so as we've been gathering together here over the last several months, uh, we have been going verse by verse down through the book of Acts. And last Lord's Day morning, as we were gathered here together with God's holy word in our hand, we remember that Paul had just safely arrived in the city of Corinth, a city, as we looked at, known as the Sin City of Achaia. It's, again, just you keep in your mind, it's like, what is Las Vegas? What do they say? It's the Sin City of America. This is where God had led the Apostle Paul to take up, if you will, residence for just a little while. And the Lord, you remember, showed Paul much kindness because Timotheus and Silas had stayed behind. They were over in Macedonia. And God, in his graciousness to Paul, of course, united him with Priscilla and Aquila, who had, uh, peradventure by the sovereign hand of God, had moved there from Rome. And they were there uh, as tent makers, as we looked at. In fact, it's, it really is an amazing thing when you consider what the Lord said to Paul as he was there in the city of Corinth. You remember the vision by night that he had. He said, be not afraid, but speak, amen, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall sit on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And so, again, we looked at Corinth and the, the, the situation, the things that were going on in Sin City there at that time, and yet the Lord has his people whom he will elect and draw and save. And we observed in our text that God indeed did lay hold of Crispus. You remember that. Crispus, who was indeed the chief ruler of the synagogue. He and all of his household. And then as we continued in our text, and many others that were there in Corinth, the Lord had gotten a hold and taken a hold of them. Of course, by the regenerating work of the Holy Ghost, they heard the word and were saved under the saving of their souls. And again, brethren, as we take up our text this morning, it is this fruit, if you will, this fruitful harvest of souls by the Lord in Corinth there, amen, that once again sends the religious. Brethren, I can't say it enough. Please, do not be religious. <laughs> not in an, unbiblical, in an unbiblical sense of the word, okay? There's, James tells us about biblical religion. That there, there is a biblical religion. But if you are a religious person, Please, as we plead, as Paul pleads with religious people, repent. Repent in your mind concerning how one is saved, who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And because it's the religious, if you will, and I call them this, the religious hounds of hell, because of this glorious, fruitful work that God is doing, it sends them into a most unholy tizzy once again. And we've seen this pattern over and over again as we see the word of God doing its work and then the enemies of God against that work. This, of course leads us to our text this morning and to the title of our sermon, which is, And the Jews made insurrection with Paul in, in one accord against Paul. And so again, this is where we take up our text this morning. Look at verses 12 and 13 of Acts chapter 18. Let's just begin there this morning. Look at verses 12 and 13, as Dean has read. And when Galil was deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. Well, brothers, Luke pens for us here by way of inspiration that harmonious, unholy trouble, 
soon followed Paul. I mean, it was like right after this vision that he was given by God, this unholy, harmonious, we call it that, because the Jews were in one accord against him, amen? Just like it's an amazing thing, isn't it, how Satan likes to, if you will, copy what God does, because all along we've seen that the Christians in the book of Acts are what? They are in one accord. They are in harmony with one another, and here we see the devil rearing his ugly head once again against the people of God, against Paul, against the preaching of the gospel with one accord. It's quite a stunning, amazing thing. And so we see this unholy, uh, harmonious um, trouble that comes his way almost immediately. And of course, Luke, brothers, with historic accuracy in his pen, dates for us the exact time of our text. This is beautiful because he tells us that Galileo was, of course, the deputy of Achaia. And all we have to do, he was appointed, obviously, deputy there historically. Again, Luke is telling us precisely what, where the era, where we're at, where the church is at. So we look historically and just say, well, Galil was appointed uh, deputy of Achaia in July of 51 AD, and he reigned. He was there for a year until June of 52 AD. Now, this guy, Galil, was a most interesting character even in history. He was a brother to the famous, or infamous, I should say, philosopher of Seneca, who himself was a tutor, <laughs> a tutor and an advisor to Nero. So we see here, brethren, exactly what kind of man this man is. And so Luke gives us this glorious detail because when we see what God does later on with his chosen instrument, Galileo, it's quite a stunning thing. So this is really the history of this chosen instrument of God. The Jews, Luke writes, in one accord, I already said it, in unharmonious, unholy unity, accused Paul of insurrection. What is insurrection? Well, it's not what happened in January 6th. This is something that they accused Paul of doing. And really, the word insurrection is the open and active opposition to the execution of a law. In fact, look at verse 13. That's exactly what they accused him of. Look there as we read verse 13 together again. Look at that, saying, this fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the what? To the law. And so this is the, the actual biblical and right definition. They're bringing these accusations against Paul concerning who he is. Now, it's interesting, again, brethren, as we look here in our text. With their ungodly intentions, the Jewish leaders brought Paul before the judgment seat, hoping that Galileo would indeed outlaw and make illegal this thing called Christianity. This is their intention. This is what they were hoping and praying that Galileo would do, that he would outlaw this thing called Christianity, which then immediately would what? It would set a precedence all through Rome, all across the, the, the region there, and immediately there would be persecution, even worse than what's been taking place, there would be persecution and really the killing of Christians out of hand. This is what they were hoping was going to happen. It's a stunning thing. If that would happen, they could rid themselves of Paul. They could rid themselves of the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. They just rid themselves of all of it. Because, of course, that which was taking place was indeed upsetting and tipping over their religious wagons, if you will. That's my terminology. This is what was happening. The, pre the gospel would be preached. God's work would continue. The Spirit of God would draw men. He would save men. And then it would send the religious people into a demonic tizzy, which is just exactly what we see in our text again. However, this is the gloriousness of God, 
This is the gloriousness of our text. This is the gloriousness of the sovereignty of God. As, uh, as we turn our religious affections to verses 14, 15, and 16, we see, brethren, that what these men meant for evil, because that was their intention, the Lord God himself and his direct providence uses for his glory and good. It's an amazing thing. And that he raised up this man, Galil, for such a time and for such a decision as this. And I want you to see here again in verses 14, 15, and 16, the working of God. Sometimes we read a text and we glaze over the top of it. We don't even realize what God is doing in the text sometimes. I admit I do that too. We sometimes skin over it. But I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice in verse 14 that Paul doesn't even have to open his mouth. This is a stunning thing, brother. And when you consider what God is doing here, again, the work of God as he is bringing to pass exactly what God is, is going to bring to pass there. Look at verse 14. Look what the Bible says there. Paul doesn't even have to open his mouth. In fact, God already has sent his defender there, Galileo, God's chosen instrument. Look at what verse 14 says. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said unto the Jews, Paul didn't even have to utter a word. Here's God providing already this defender who is a man who isn't even a Christian, who isn't even of the Christian faith. God puts this Galileo right in place, and Paul doesn't even have to open his mouth. It's a stunning thing, brother, and when you consider what God is doing, he defends Paul without even, if you will, as God's chosen vessel, Look at verse 15. Look at this glorious, holy, and right decision chosen by God's vessel. Again, you have to keep in mind who Galileo is. He's a man who is uh, a brother of Seneca, who, of course, was a man who was inside the inner circle with Nero. And look at verse 15. Look what he says there, this glorious, right decision that is made. Verse 15, or verse uh, 14, look what he says there. Or verse 15, I guess I'm at, ain't I? But if it be a question of the words or names or of your law, look, to, uh, to, look ye to it, for I will be no judge in such matters. So verse 14, he defends Paul and what Paul is doing there, being brought by the Jews. Second of all, he says, I'm not going to hear this. I don't want to hear any of this if it has to do with you, with your Jewish laws and names and all that stuff. And then look what Paul does, simply standing there. This is what's so glorious about this text. Paul's a bystander in all of this. He's an absolute bystander. You see what God is doing here. Look at verse 16. It's an amazing thing. Look what he does. This instrument of God who had this man preordained to be there for the, such a time and such a place and such a decision as this. Look what he does. Verse 16. And he drave them from the judgment seat. Now, brethren, here we have Paul who was the greatest preacher of his time. Amen. No question about that. Writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, inspired by God. And there he is standing there before the judgment seat, these Jews having this ill intent to, if you will, quash Christianity, which is what they've been trying to do all along. And here we had God that just defends Paul. Paul doesn't say a word. Amen. He makes a right, glorious decision. This man, this instrument that God had preordained to be there for this place and this time, and this decision is such... A glorious thing when you think about it. Paul stands still and sees the work of God as his accusers are ejected right from the hall. It's a stunning, amazing, and glorious thing. In fact, I like what one preacher said concerning this. He said, in this great narrative, Paul is not even a player, but a spectator. 
Brethren, you've got to get a hold of this and what this means. Because this really ties to the end of the message. It ties to what, how it is going to apply to you and I today. Paul is just a spectator. He's just there watching God do his work. The pastor continues, It is God who raises up a man who has an, un, an accommodating mind toward Paul and Christianity. You realize, brethren, what could have happened, and I don't like to do coulds or anything like that, but if Galileo would have outlawed Christianity, we know what would have happened, what could have happened. I don't want to speculate or anything. I just know what God did. He raised up this man who protected Paul, who drove his accusers out. It's an amazing thing. And Paul just stands there and gives God all the glory for what God has done. It is truly a stunning thing. In fact, look at verse 17. Paul escapes. Paul's protected. Look at verse 17 there. Look what the Bible says after they're driven out. Verse 17, then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. <laughs> so they, they grab a hold of Sosthenes, amen? Paul is out. Paul's protected. Here Sosthenes comes along, and they simply grab onto him, and they beat him, who is indeed, the Bible says, the chief ruler of the synagogue. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. Now, Luke does not divulge to us why they did it. There's much speculation about this, and I don't want to speculate. All I know is this, is that they took Sosthenes, who was indeed the chief ruler of the synagogue, who took whose place? Whose place did Sosthenes take? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse number 8. Remember Crispus? Yeah, here we have God who steals and snatches Crispus out of the synagogue, who is the chief ruler. It gets replaced by Sosthenes. Look at verse number 8 of chapter 18. We looked at this last week. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now, this is interesting because God, again, as he's working this out, amen, uses this incident, this, if you will, this beating, to draw in succession another high Jewish ruler. It's a stunning thing, brethren, when you consider this. First it's Crispus. Now it's another ruler of the synagogue, a chief ruler of the synagogue. Yes, brethren, this is precisely what God has done. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This, of course, is where he's at. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse number 1. Well, by golly, whose name is mentioned there? Let's just take a look together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse number 1. Look what Paul calls Sosthenes. It's a stunning thing. Again, right in a row, right in tandem, right in succession. And see, this is the thing that the Jews hated. They hated it because, again, this glorious fruit of God. He's reaching into the palaces. He's reaching into the gutters. He's reaching into the streets. He's reaching into the jails everywhere in Acts. And he's taking out, if you will, drawing a people onto himself. And even here, he does it again. Look at verse number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And who? Sosthenes, our brother. There he is. There it is. God just simply says, all right, we're going to take Crispus. We're going to take his household. We're going to take many in Corinth. We're gonna, and then we're going to do something else. And when you replace Crispus, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to take Sosthenes as well right out from underneath, if you will, their Jewish noses. It's a stunning thing to behold. It really is as you see God work this glorious thing out. It matters not, brethren, 
it matters not. If God found you in the gutter, if God found you in the jailhouse, right, Howard? No matter where he found you, he sought you out and saved you. Whether you were in the gutter, whether you were in a Christian home, whether, wherever you were, God sought you out and he saved you. And look what he did here. What a glorious work of God. Again, we see all glory to God. This is it. Brethren, this is the thing that we must get a hold of. God uses us. Think of this for a moment. Let's just think about this for a glorious moment. Look what God is doing as Paul is preaching. Look at the fruit that's being produced. And even when Paul was just a bystander, God's work is completed. It is a stunning thing to behold for us to grasp and get a hold of. God will indeed seek and save his own no matter where they are at. It is a glorious biblical truth. It really, really is. Now look here, Paul, if you will, look at verse number 18. Again, as we have been going through the book of Revelation, even as we have two on Wednesday evening, as we have now been going through the book of Acts for a long extended period of time, I might add, we cannot help, brethren, but see over and over again the Jewishness of both of those books. It is a stunning thing. In fact, in verse number 18, as we read that together, I want you to consider what Paul is doing. Look at verse number 18 as we read that together. The Bible says, And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren, and sailed thence into Syria. And with him Priscilla and Aquila, listen, having shorn his head in Sencrea, for he had a vow. It's an interesting thing, again, the, when you understand the Jewishness of what's taking place and how Paul never, as we've said before, he never completely abandoned his Jewishness, brethren. He was saved by Christ, but there were things that he still in his life, as we've seen in the book of Acts, and we see over and over in the book of Revelation, again, as I study that out, it's just stunning to see that. It's no different here in Sancria. Paul had a vow. Now, it's interesting here, though, that unlike many of the other cities, Paul wasn't forced out of Corinth. He stayed there, as Luke says, for a good while. Now, why is that? Why would Paul stay there in Corinth for a good while? Because he's the, 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 the promise that the Lord Jesus made to him, hey, speak, preach, for I have much people there, this is what Paul is doing. He stayed there a good while because Jesus is fulfilling his promise to him that I have many people in this city. And so Paul was able to stay there a good while. He preached there a good while. There was many people who were saved during that good while. And simply, he's just simply doing what Jesus said would happen. Paul is moved along by the Holy Ghost to the city of Sincrea, where he shaved his head in keeping a vow. This vow uh, was, as many believe, a Nazarite vow, a unique consecrating vow, if you will. Now, I know there are others say, well, no, it wasn't that. But if you actually just stay within the text, yes, it was. It absolutely was a Nazarite vow. This is a vow that one made unto God in gratitude for his blessings. Well, what just happened to Paul? Paul was in Corinth. Paul was protected by God in Corinth. He left Corinth in peace after he'd been preaching there a great while. And he ends up safely where? In, in Sincrea. This is where he's at. So Paul now has taken this vow. He's taken this Nazarite vow. Amen. Now this vow included 
a total absence from any products of the grapevine. <laughs> you know what that means, right? No alcohol, no nothing. It was a complete and total abstaining from that, which I believe all elders should. <laughs> Don't you? Yeah, I do. All elders should abstain from any, if you will, products of the grapevine. One was not to cut his hair for a set period of time and never, ever come near a dead body. This, of course, is in, if you want to look, Numbers chapter 6. We know that. We don't have time to go there. But, brethren, when the set period of time was completed, the hair, which was allowed to grow freely because he could not shore it off, the hair was then cut off and burned. This is important and burned along with other sacrifices. This is very important to our text. That would be offered to the Lord at a special ceremony. Listen, that could only be conducted only according to the law of God in the temple at Jerusalem. At the temple in Jerusalem. They couldn't do it anywhere else. It had to be done right there. Hence, verse 21. Read with me there, brethren. If you would, look at verse number 21, Acts 18, verse 21. But bade them farewell, saying, I must, by all means, amen, uh, keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem. But I will return again unto you, if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. You see, Paul took this vow, and he knew that the only way to complete the vow was to go where? Was to go to Jerusalem to the feast in the temple. And so, yes, brethren, this was indeed a Nazarite vow. This is one that he kept. In fact, not only did Paul do it once, but let me show you this just a couple chapters later that he does it again. Look at Acts chapter 20, if you would, with me this morning. Or Acts 21, excuse me. Acts chapter 21. Let me show you this here. Look at verse number 23. Acts 21. Look at verse number 23. Do therefore this that we say to thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. That's the Nazarite vow. This is exactly what it is here in the book of Acts. Look at verse 24. Then take and purify thyself with them and, and be at changes with, uh, charges with them and that they may shave their heads and that all may know that, the, that those things whereof they are informed or catechized concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law as touching the Gentiles which believe we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only uh, that they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from strangled and from fornication. Look at verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the where? Where did he go? He went into the temple. Again, this is the only place that it could be done, was in Jerusalem at the temple. This Nazarene vow, this sacrifice, this offering that they would give unto God, and again, he even segregates himself from the, from the Gentiles. The Gentiles don't do that. But those of us who were Jews, this is what we do. So he even segregates them here from one another. Look at verse 26. And then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered, entered into the temple, signifying the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. So again, brethren, this is what we see. We see Paul, again, we understand, right? He knows and understands that it doesn't save him. But he knows and understands also that there are Jews around him that he's preaching to, that he's reaching out to, and this is what God does for him. Again, there is nothing wrong, brethren, with doing some of these things as long as it doesn't become salvific. Do you understand what that means? As long as it doesn't come, become sacerdotal, where you say, like some people say, 
right? We got to get in the baptistry back here because water washes away your sins. It does something salvific. It does not. Or the Lord's table here, it turns into the literal body and blood, the transubstantiation of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, it does not. It is symbolic, brethren. But there's nothing wrong with what Paul does here. In fact, if it was, he would have never done it. But again, we see him, don't we? He never quite does away with his Jewish history, with his Jewish lineages. It's the same thing here. In fact, when we go on, he's got to go to another feast. He keeps the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He keeps the Day of Pentecost. It goes on and on. That's what he does. And every open door, every opportunity, you know what he does? <laughs> he goes right to the synagogue, and you know what he does? He preaches the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Amen? What an amazing thing. We see, again, God delivering Paul. Paul simply being faithful. He's going, and he's going to continue to preach there at Sancria. It's an amazing thing. Now, it's interesting as we conclude this portion of our text that Paul has his scribe Tertius record for us, brethren, a portion of the Lord's fruit in Sancria. And I want you to see this. Again, this stuff's all tied together. See, this? the book of Acts is rolling along. Other things are happening. But we see this in the book of Romans. Turn with me there, if you would, to Romans chapter 16. A very familiar portion of Scripture to all of us. A very familiar name to all of us. But again, we see as the Lord is doing his work through Paul as he's preaching there, another name pops up, Priscilla and Aquila. Amen? And now this name as well as Paul has Tertius record for us. Tertius, of course, was Paul's scribe. Paul was inspired by God. He told Tertius, here's what you write, and Tertius wrote it. Still inspired by God, amen? Simply his scribe. Look at verse number one. I commend you, Phoebe, our sister. There she is, amen? Which is a servant of the church, which is in Sancria that ye receive her in the Lord as become of saints, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you. For she hath been a secure, a helper of many, and myself also. So again, we see Paul as he's traveling along. He leaves Corinth. He goes to Sancria, and lo and behold, look what happens. Amen? Here we have again the preaching, and Phoebe is saved in that church while Paul is there. It's quite a stunning thing. Again, the work of the Lord just continues. It goes on and on and on. In fact, if you look at verse 22, just so you know, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. Again, that's his, that's his scribe. That's who is listening to Paul. As he, Paul's being inspired by God. He reads it to him and says it to him, and then Tertius writes it down. Amen. This is what took place. Phoebe, a servant in the church in Sancria. What a glorious Thing we see in our text. Finally, look back there at Acts chapter 18. Look at verses 19 and 20. Look at verses 19 and 20 there, if you would. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself, well, who did he leave there? Remember, we looked at this last week. It was Priscilla and Aquila who came to Ephesus with him, and what did we find there in Ephesus? Well, they had a church there. They had a church house in Rome. I mean, Priscilla and Aquila were used by God gloriously and greatly uh, as Paul moved around as they followed him in his ministry. Same thing here, verse 19. He came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. There it is again. There's that constant, ever uh, non-changing habit of his. And look at verse number 20, though. When they desired him to tarry longer with him, he consented not. 
And this, brethren, is one of the very few times where Paul would enter into a synagogue. And again, we understand that Paul was a theologian. Paul had an open, if you will, door to go into the synagogue and to preach freely at the synagogues. We've looked at that and saw that, amen? This is one of the few times where Paul goes into the synagogue and instead of taking him by the rope and dragging him out by his neck, the Jews actually wanted to hear more. Again, we see God just preparing, the Holy Spirit of God, preparing the hearts of these people as they are sitting there. Hey, wait a minute. We, uh, we're like these other ones over here, Thessalonica, some of these other places. We, we want to hear more concerning this resurrection, concerning who this Jesus Christ really is. Now, there's something very important here as we close, which is hard to believe. I mean, it's, it's only a quarter to 12. We're going to be out of here early today, brother. I could probably go on, but... I won't. I won't. Now, brethren, keep in mind, we must always remember that this is according to the good pleasure and timing of God that Paul finally arrives in Ephesus. You remember, right, that back in Acts 16, Paul wanted to go to Ephesus. Paul wanted to go to Asia. He wanted to go, if he would have went down in the southeastern route, he would have went right through Ephesus where he wanted to go. Who stopped him? Do you remember? It was the Holy Spirit of God. Nope. You're not going there yet. But Paul, when you get there, brother, there's going to be a church that grows, that blossoms, even in the city of Ephesus, where Diana is worshipped, where all of these things are happening again. The gospel will go forth, and there will be a, a glorious church there. Hence, we get our, the book of Ephesians, which, for four chapters... Straightens us all out theologically. And for the next two chapters, amen, what does it do? It tells us how to apply that theology, how to live in the church, how to live as families, how to live in the home, how all these things. It's a stunning thing. But it is God's good pleasure and his good timing that Paul is finally here. He arrives here in Ephesus according to God's good pleasure. Now the Holy Ghost gives him liberty here, amen, Gives him a lot of liberty to preach in this important city. Although, as we have already considered, verse 21, he couldn't stay very long. Where is he headed? He took a vow. He's headed to Jerusalem to complete that vow. He couldn't stay long. He preached for a while. And then he was moved along by the Spirit of God. In fact, I like what Paul says. He says to them, if God wills. Brother, and that is such an important phrase and statement for all of us. If God wills. If God wills, I'll come back. And we know what happened. He did, in fact, was brought back by the Spirit of God there. Eventually. If God wills, I will indeed return unto all of you. Now let me just close, if I could, with a practical point or two if God wills is indeed as I said a most holy phrase that should precede all of our intentions all of our plans <laughs> if God wills amen remember what James said who are you oh man who are you to make all of these plans all of these plans without God. 
considering not the Lord. That doesn't work very well, brother. In fact, he says what? You're here today and gone tomorrow. And you know what ends with your plans? When you're gone, your plans end. But if you are being obedient to God, and you are considering if the Lord wills, it's an amazing thing, even when you're gone, His plan carries on. It's an amazing thing, brethren, to consider. If the Lord wills. You want to know what's spooky about all this? Have you ever listened to devout Muslims talk? Go sometime on YouTube and listen what they say. They don't hardly utter a word without first saying, if God wills. If God wills. It's stunning and scary, actually. Because they've got not the God of the Bible. <laughs> they have another God. But we have the God of Scripture. If God wills, then we'll do this. Then we'll do that. And again, this is something that Paul, of course, submitted himself to on a regular basis. Can you imagine, brother, sitting before the judgment seat? Galil's there. We're going to beat the daylights out of you. We're going to beat you like you've never been beaten before. You thought it was bad before. We're going to take it out on you. And Paul doesn't say a word. Galil just simply says, get out of here. Get lost. Protecting him. It's a stunning thing, brother. This is something that we all must learn. As I get older, <laughs> I have to tell you, and I shouldn't say this too loud in front of my young children, but as one gets older, do you know what you begin to consider more and more? Is the sunset of your life. The ending of it. Right? When you're closer to the end than you are to the beginning, it really makes you ponder these things. And you say, if the Lord wills, amen, I'll do this or I'll do that. I'll go here or I'll do that. If it is indeed according to God's will. It really does heighten it for you. Amen? Now I know we can die at any minute, any second, any time. I could drop over right now, but so could you. We see it every day. Ten-year-olds, eight-year-olds, 20-year-olds. By the way, can I just say something political just for fun? Brother Keith, you'll like this. You realize that they've stopped now saying, at least in Florida, can I say that? Have you guys seen this? Can I say this? I can say this. You know, they've, the governor now and his uh, attorney general has said no more COVID shots, no more Myrna shots for those who are 21 to 30 years old. You know why? Because it's killing them at an incredible rate. Nobody's saying a word. It's a stunning thing, isn't it? Don't do it. Amen. Here we see again, in all decisions, and all things that we do, we must indeed, brethren, consider this. And we got to finish. If it is the Lord's will. If the Lord wills. Amen. This is what we have to consider, just as Paul did. This whole narrative with Galileo and the rest of our text declares to you and I, brethren, doesn't it? That God is indeed the one who oversees all of human affairs. God is also the one who protects his church. That's you. 
That's me. God is the one who does this. This indeed is music to my ears. It should be music to every Christian's ears. That God. In fact, can I just sidetrack for a moment? I caught myself recently, just as a practical thing. Lord, I'm praying for our church. Lord, I pray for our church. What's wrong with that, brother? It's not our church. You know whose it is? It's his. Father, I pray for your church. I pray for your people who you've gathered here in this local assembly. It changes everything. It changes one's view because it's his church. It's not ours. Paul recognizes this. He realizes this. And this is something, brother, that's so practical that we can take certainly to the Lord for sure. He is the protector of his church. And we see here how God acts to accomplish his perfect will in heaven as it is on earth. It's a glorious thing, brother, when one can come to that. Again, it's music to our ears. As he uses us to propagate, think of this, brethren, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ right here in Bismarck, North Dakota. <laughs> think of how personal that gets. Right in your workplace, right where you're at. He uses you. We saw in Revelation, didn't we, on Wednesday night, brethren, that an angel is preaching the, the, the eternal gospel. It's the same gospel he's preaching it, but you know what? That's the only time in the New Testament where we see any angel preaching the gospel. Otherwise, it's who? It's us. It's God's people who are preaching the gospel. It's us who he uses. It's a stunning thing, brother. We're here just at the right time, just at the right place, just in the right era, just in God's perfect timing. Just as Paul, just as Galil, just as those men were, according to God's glorious plan. From the gutter, the jailhouse, stunning thing, to the high seat of the governor's office in our own state. Yeah, that's really what we're seeing here. From here to here to here to there. Even right into our governor's office. If the Lord so wills, he will indeed save his elect. Let's pray. Father, we Again, rejoice with you in your word this morning. We have recognized and realized so many things, so many great truths, and there are many more there to be mined out, I can assure you of that. And Father, we, we thank you for what you've given us this morning, that we can open 